You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, everybody. It's Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr. This is Jack Bevere, my partner in crime. We're here today for episode seven of the podcast. Hope you guys have been enjoying it so far. Today, we're just going to kind of go around the horn, uh, talk about sort of market trends, what we're seeing in inventory, demand, interest rates, and maybe even give some predictions. Uh, You ready to go here? Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's rock and roll. Hey, so great uh, article came out. Realtor.com just came out with their June 2023 monthly housing market trends report. And I saw some really interesting facts in there. By the way, if you guys want to go check out any of the links in the podcast uh, today, as always, we'll set up a uh, Google Drive where you can download it at realinvestorradio.com forward slash notes. But uh, let's go ahead and jump into this report, man. So just a few facts here on sort of what's going on in the market. And obviously, this is nationwide data here. So it says the number of homes actively for sale increased by 7.1% uh, compared to last year. Home sellers were less active, however, with 25% fewer homes newly listed for sale compared to this time last year. So yeah. one quarter less homes. Yeah. And the and I recall that the contracts were down, but not as much as listings are down, which suggests that you know the inventory, if you're a buyer out there right now, you, there's less to choose from. If you're a real estate agent right now, especially on the listing side, well, I really on both sides, right? Like you're really feeling it right now. We yeah. thought that like inventory levels were down a year ago and they're still coming down. Uh, so I think a lot of pain on the real estate agent side, just from a transaction volume point of view. Right. That dynamic though, between more listings down than contracts means that inventory remains super tight and that's kept housing prices up. That's the, and frankly, almost like the only thing buoying prices up because in the past 30 days, we saw uh, mortgage rates spike up and back up to the high sixes, almost to the 7% level for conventional loans, yep. well into the sevens if you're an investor bo- uh, borrowing DSCR money right now. I've seen them as high as eight. Yeah. And, and Unless you're buying in like the toughest of spots, uh, you know, $80,000 houses, which also then become hard to get a loan on, it's really hard to make 8% interest rates work on a current basis uh, with Why? net cash flow on a rental property. Just because the, ca- the cap rate that you're buying houses at is typically, you know, in good income producing markets, kind of between 6 and 8%. In, you know, houses that are above $200,000 tend not to be 8% cap rate markets, though. So if you're buying like the 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 ninety five thousand dollar house, yeah, maybe you can find an eight or a nine or even a ten cap, and that's a creative. That 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 eight borrowing money at eight percent is is still you know you can make that work. There's enough money left over at the end of the month to make your mortgage payment. Sure, but as I said, those hundred thousand dollar houses are the harder ones to get financed in the first place, just because of lender concerns about being in the low end of the market. They tend to have tougher guidelines there. Do you have data on uh, because you're you lend all over the country? Do you have data on sort of like the top cities that you lend in what's sort of the average purchase price of a city home these days it's been a long time since i purchased a house in a city yeah i mean we buy a lot of houses in baltimore and where the arvs are like you know 140 to right. 200 typical row house yeah yeah that's a sweet spot for investor activity uh and i also i'd say that that kind of extrapolates across the country as well like kind of the the hundred thousand dollar to $300,000 ARV, I, you know, that's that's the sweet spot for cap rates. As you go up in values, though, those cap rates come down, sure. right? So the nicer properties, the, you know, the, the, the $250,000 house right now, 
it's you know, next to impossible to get that at an eight cap. And then the debt's being offered to you at 8% or, you know, seven and a half percent. Like that's, that's, it's really tough to make those numbers work. I remember a conversation you and I had a long time ago about sort of the, and this is going a little bit off topic, but we had a conversation a long time ago about the headache factor versus the return, right? And yeah. so, yeah, I can go buy houses for 80 grand in the city right now, but my headache factor is going to be through the roof. And so, but my cap rate will obviously be much higher. Yeah, on, on paper, they look like really attractive deals, right? And you get a lot of new investors who say like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm buying this house because like I can, you know, I, I did, the, I got my Excel spreadsheet and I did the math <laughs> right. and this is a 10 cap and like, that's phenomenal. It's, it, it kills the 1% rule. Like this is phenomenal. This is like almost two. Um, <laughs> What's the uh, line item for, for bad tenant, yeah. perpetual bad tenant. Yeah. And, and yeah, what, what gets underappreciated is the short tenancy duration, cost of frequent turnovers, cost of frequent vacancy and releasing mm-hmm. the credit quality tends not to be great and or as, as good. So your credit uh, loss uh, should be, is higher typically than what you put on that spreadsheet. And then, yeah, just the, just the, frankly, the emotional (laughs) (laughs) toll that, uh, the, the dealing with that drama of the volatility of those, if you get a great tenant, it's aces, right? Like it's the best thing ever. You're like clipping a 10 and like thrilled, thrilled with life, but that 10 can come crashing down to a zero with a couple bad, with a string of bad tenants. And so uh, it's really hard to scale that. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole too far here, but what is a good average tenancy for you or for for a landlord who really uh, wants to have better tenants, you know, what, what would you say? Yeah. So the, um, the public REIT data gets published on this because it's, you know, because they're public companies. So they publish that kind of data in, in their quarterly and annual reports. So the public REITs are that, that own single family properties are seeing roughly high, you know, high three, four, four years of tenancy mm-hmm. duration on average versus multifamily, which has been historically in the two and a half to three years of tenancy duration. Mm-hmm. Now, given the higher costs of turning over a single family property, I think that having four years of tenancy duration is kind of necessary because yeah. the costs of turnover for a house are higher than for an apartment. Our portfolio in Baltimore is actually, we're getting up to close to seven years of average wow. duration. That's much higher than when you and I talked about it. Yeah. And that me. is the, an interesting thing that we've seen over time is that as you own a portfolio over time, it calms down over time, right? Like, because the, the, the more transitory people, some people are there to stay. Some people are there for a short period of time. The people who are there for a short period of time leave eventually. And then you have a higher probability or you have a probability of getting someone who's going to stay longer on mm. average. Mm. So just over time, we've seen our tenancy duration increase. You know, f- uh, seven years ago, I was bragging about f- you know five and a half years. And yeah. now we're actually closer to seven on average on an 800 property portfolio. So that's been an interesting dynamic that we've seen over time. That's very cool. One other uh, data point here that I thought, or a couple more that I thought were really interesting from this uh, Realtor.com report was that the median price of homes for sale decreased by about 1% annually in June, which is the first decline they've seen in their data since 2017. Yeah, I saw that. It's slight contraction, obviously, and it's yeah. probably very localized and probably more in certain cities, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Case-Shiller and the Black Knight data on the on home prices they, they publish month over month data, which is great because you know, year over year data is it's too long. Like a year ago was freaking forever ago. Yeah. And so what happened a year ago versus what happened this th- this month is not a, or sorry, this time this year is not that interesting. But watching the month over month data, you have like the, some higher variability, obviously, uh, in maybe just data collection issues. Mm-hmm. But it's like but it's data in real time. Right. So I prefer to look at the month over month stuff. And 
We saw decreases in the fourth quarter last year, month over month for three or four consecutive months. But then as um, we came into the new year, we started to see you know modest price increases month over month. And then right now, it, but, but the, you, that data point that you mentioned is uh, differs a little from the Black Knight and CoreLogic data. Or I'm sorry, Black Knight and Case Shiller data. Where were they? It's you national remember? data. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, th- I think that you know, there's this tension right now that seems to be really thematic playing out between you know, it's affordability versus housing inventory. Mm-hmm. And though affordability and you know, affordability is moving with, um, with mortgage prices or with mortgage rates, generally speaking. And so when we got 7% conventional mortgage rates in the third quarter of last year, that re- that that caused nominal house prices to decline, as we would have expected. Yeah, uh, and then this, but in the first quarter, you know, those rates came down a little bit, and inventory stayed low, and so we started to see nominal price increases, even in generally an unaffordable market. And so, but it's such a low volume market right now mm-hmm. that I think that the, the the tension between those two is like volatile, right? Like depending on what mortgage rates do in a particular month can have a significant impact on on demand. Sure. And so, uh, and with such low levels of inventory, we're, we're seeing a lot of volatility in housing prices on a very regional basis on, uh, within short periods of time. So like, um, it's not this steady 2% increase in the market is, is stable. Like right. it's really, the dynamics are changing a lot every 30 days and you really have to keep close tabs on the data and the market to, uh, you know, to understand what's going on in your backyard. Absolutely. We'll get to interest rates in a second, but uh, speaking of inventory, uh, it was down about 4.6% compared to the same week in 2022 and down 51% uh, compared with 2019. And yeah, I get that those, you know, we're a universal way in terms of time, but inventory is really constrained right now, man. Yeah. Talk about that locally here as well. Yeah, we've, um, uh, I mean, that's absolutely the case. We have, in our fix and flip lending business, we have sustained volumes, um, but we're working really hard to sustain volumes. The amount of deals that are being done per investor, I think is down, generally speaking. And uh, just anecdotally for us, for example, in the first quarter of 2023, we bought we bought 29 houses in the kind of the Baltimore metro area. That's where we're that's where our properties business is located. Mm-hmm. So 29 houses in the first quarter, which was good for us. We were very happy with that. In the second quarter, it was down to 14, which is very concerning. Now, some of that might you know might have been tied to the spike in the mortgage rates at that same time, and so sellers just kind of pulled back. It was also you know we were going into the spring, so maybe they were like, hey, it's you know it's the spring selling season. I'm going to list with a realtor. Sure. It's very difficult to unpack the uh, psychology, the seller psychology in the as-is market, right? Because yep. it's, it's pretty varied. But, and then so far in July, uh, so coming in here to the third week of the third quarter, I've got no contracts so far in the past three weeks. My acquisition guys are freaking out. Um, <laughs> I'm freaking out a little bit trying You've to figure out. You've been in the business out. for 15 years. Have you ever seen anything like it? You've ridden some cycles, obviously. Yeah, we, we, um, we have from time to time so i'm not like shutting down shop or anything like that but it's a painful it's a painful wave to ride right i mean one of the things you mentioned before we started the taping here was that you know same advertising yeah. same everything haven't changed the message haven't changed a thing yeah and zero you're you're a blank for third quarter yeah so far it's only been three weeks but 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 yeah but a blank is you know we're like it should be six and it's zero that's uh statistically significant and yeah like you said we, we didn't change anything there like the direct mail 
marketing that we've been doing has been the same the entire time, same pieces, same consistency, same folks answering the phones. The call rate for us is down 50% year over year. When you just, say call rate, this is uh, sellers number of call, calling yeah, just in. The number of call, yeah, the number potential of, sellers. Yeah, the number of times the phone rings. And uh, so that's been, you know, that is remarkable. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a concerning statistic. Uh, we also do some television advertising that's stayed the same the whole time. So calls are definitely down. Our conversions on those calls are down. You know, we're going to watch it to, to keep tabs on, on what's going there. But, you know, I, and, and that may be now, now I don't see the same correlation in our fix and flip lending business, right? Like it's not like those deals have fallen off the cliff now, but, but there we're lending nationally. So we've got the benefit of, you, Scale. Know, you know, those curves across markets are, are going to be different. And so lending nationally is nice because we get some, you know, diversification of markets. You're not seeing any decrease in, in lending at all? It's been flat. Just, just, no, it's been, it's been fine. No, it's been fine. Yeah. It's been steady. It's been steady so far. I'm a little concerned, right? Like if I'm going goose eggs right now, does that mean 30 days from now they're going to be like, yep, we don't need a loan. Like exactly. there's no closings coming up. It's scary to think that Baltimore would be a leading indicator, but uh, you know, <laughs> we'll see how it goes for you. Yeah. I think it's just a data point, but it's uh, one that we're keeping an eye on. Hey, one other thing that I saw in that report last thing would be uh, time on market. And while it's still typically low, in the 50 largest metropolitan areas around the country, homes were generally on the market for about 37 days, still quite low. However, that's 11 more days than last last June. And the trend is actually, again, it's sort of uh, location specific. So in the South, um, they've seen an increase of about 15 days. Uh, West is about nine. South is obviously the, the seeing the highest in, increase of days on market. Any any concerns, comments there? Yeah, it's something I think you mentioned pre-show as well. The the mix of inventory is shifting more towards more towards new construction. Oh yeah, I've got a lot of stuff on that. We're seeing that flipped inventory is moving quickly, mm. and so you know the days on market is up. But I think that that I think my my sense of that is that. Quality inventory is still moving. Can I, ask you, can I ask you about that quickly? Mm-hmm. We've always seen that like nicely done inventory, yeah. right? Like I didn't go in, in there and do like a patch and paint lipstick on a pig type thing. No, I went in and I really did a nice rehab on it. Is the is the lipstick on a pig sitting? Yeah, the lipstick on a pig is sitting. Yeah, it's the the stuff that, that needs the stuff that needs work. The you know the buyers stretching themselves from an affordability point of view to hit your price point sure, anyway, sure. and so like the idea of buying that house and then also doing twenty grand of projects like they don't got it, you know like they're 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 maxed out on affordability here. So and if the guy down the street's offering the same thing for a couple dollars more, yeah, exactly. And you and from a, from a cash out of pocket point of view and from a you know using using up your income uh, point of view, buying that turnkey generally you know fix and flip inventory or new construction. Uh, I think it's just generally more appealing right now. And the old, so the, the lipstick on the pig and the well-maintained, that stuff is elongating. That's, that, that stuff's sitting on the market. And, th- and that inventory is starting to build up. A word to you young rehabbers out there. Do a nice rehab and your houses will always sell quickly. I'll, I'll yeah. never forget uh, in that 2000, you know, I kind of call the 2008 to 2012 sort of that no man's land period of where everyone thought that the market was sucking wind. But we were selling houses like in record time. You know, all of my houses always sell within like 14, 21 days back then. Yeah. And I believe it's because while others were languishing on the market forever, people were taking price drops. 
we're selling houses at full price. And the reason why is because I always did an above average rehab going beyond, yeah. you know, buy the house better. If you've got to put more money into it, just buy it for a better price, right? Yeah. I think that that takes a lot of the, doing the nice rehab takes a lot of the volatility, a lot of the risk, frankly, out of the flipping business itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it sells quickly, regardless, right? It's something I learned from your partner, by the way. Yeah, you, d- you don't have those 120 days on market, you know, hard money lenders like calling you up, busting, you know, uh, busting you over, going into an extension. Like if it, you know, if it's under contract within a 30 day period, you, you know, if you make a little less and move on, but always put the right money into the rehab and the volatility or the the stress of the business over time is down a significant amount. You make a little bit, you might make a little bit less money, yep. not cutting those corners, but it's just the right way to go. Yeah, but you'll pay you'll pay less on the loan because you'll have the house for a shorter time. Your your contractors will be happy. You can move them on to the next gig. I mean, there's all there's all the benefits, and I see little uh, downside to doing a much better rehab. I agree. Right? Hey, uh, new homes. Uh, some data points on new homes uh, right now around the country. So. Um, there's about 4.1 months of uh, new homes under construction right here. It's sort of well above the normal level, but a, uh, slightly declining. New home inventory is at a record percentage of total inventory available, 23% of existing inventory. I was I was telling a, a bunch of my investor friends, uh, sort of uh, sending out the warning call back in March with uh, guys in my mastermind and people that I coach, but uh, it was this, I saw a report, uh, I think it was a guy at First American, if I'm not mistaken, he was really sounding the alarm like, hey man, come summer, we're going to be at serious inventory issue of existing homes. And he really saw the, uh, the boon coming for buyers, sort of the better route for buyers going into new homes. And so he was right. It's there at 23% of inventory where before it was about 15% where of, of total inventory were, where the experts were saying, wow, that's a lot. You know, that's way too many new homes as a part, as a portion. Now we're at 23%. So yeah, on, on the con- for the contracts. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, the, of all the houses that are selling that new construction, you know, it's the only source of new inventory, right? Like the, the folks who have the, the three and a half percent mortgage, mortgage rates are not abating, have not been, ab- been abating. So like the, that, the, the, the value in your existing three and a half percent mortgage is just as high as it ever was. And so until we start to see mortgage rates come back down and that gap start to close, we're going to continue to see exist, uh, you know, the existing home coming for sale on market that doesn't need work is going to be the rarity. Um, it's going to be the flip. Im- the only sources of new inventory are distressed situations, which lead to flip inventory yep. and, and new construction. And then the forced moves, you know, the divorces and the new jobs and uh, the, you know, surprise babies. Absolutely. So uh, moving on to our good buddy over there at Calculated Risk, he just came out with the current state of the housing market overview. Uh, this is in part two. I believe he's doing a three-part series on that. I, interest rates. I've really found some of these statistics uh, sort of amazing. It's Currently, there are 23% of the loans, uh, existing loans out there are under 3%. 61% are under 4%. And 81% are under 5%. And yeah. we wonder why no one's selling. Yeah, it's an amazing, uh, we'll definitely put that in the show notes, that graph that Bill McBride published is, uh, it's, it's striking regarding, you know, in, in that how, how much of the existing mortgages 
are well in the money right now. Yeah. And you start to see it tick, you know, the, 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 the above 6% is like starting to slowly gain market share just because attrition and, and you know, and sure. new home purchases. Mm-hmm. But um, we've got a long, like you look at that graph and you're like, oh my gosh, this is, we got a long way to go. We're a long way to come down in mortgage rates until we start to see that existing home inventory come to the market as, a, as part of the competitive set. Sure. So I'm going to see if I can make it through this. I wasn't uh, so well-versed in these facts when, when before the show when we were talking about it. It's sort of this, um, it's the difference between the bust in 2008 versus the one in 80. And let me just give you a quick, couple quick facts here. Maybe you can speak to it. McBride was saying this is very different from the housing bust of uh, 1980 versus 2008. Whereas in, in 2008, there were a lot of homeowners that were forced to sell their te- as their teaser rates expired. They they couldn't afford the the fully amortized mortgage. Whereas in 1980, rates increased very quickly. But we also had high inflation back then. We had high energy prices, much like we're seeing today, right? And so, yeah, I would just for those folks out there who are saying, oh, we'll. We're, we're not going to see uh, any sort of bust in the market. I'm not. I'm not so sure if I if I agree that we're going to have a soft landing like uh, like some people are saying. But my my theory has always been that that whatever we see is not like 2008. That the that the facts are completely different here, and they are much more aligned with what we were seeing in the early 80s when Volcker and Reagan came in, high interest rates, high energy prices, high inflation. That's precisely what we're going through today that's really affecting the market. Yeah, yeah. I, get the, I think the, the TBD on that is, mm. will this Fed be able to get inflation down faster than Volcker did, than, than that Fed did? Um, you know, will Powell be more effective now and get us back to a sustained two? It's challenging, right? Because like, when you say a sustained two, you're talking GDP? Uh, no, inflation. Uh, sustained two percent inflation. I think it's interesting the the idea that because of the low interest rate environment that we had, everyone refinanced, and as a result, there's not much inventory in the market. He can't affect housing inventory, right? There's all, there's really nothing he can do to touch housing inventory. But the super loose monetary policy of the past several years led to all those refinances. And because in the American mortgage market, we have this 30-year fixed rate mortgage, which is only callable on the borrower's side, Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist elsewhere in the world. That's only an American thing. And so he has to deal with that feature in our mortgage market. And that means that he's stuck with this idea that he he can't actually have a truly functioning housing market. So he has to like factor, you know, Powell has to factor that idea into what housing prices are going to do. I mean, housing prices, you know, shelter is a third of CPI. And so if he's targeting 2% inflation and a third of that is housing prices, well, right now, home prices are increasing, even in a, in a you know terribly unaffordable market because of the lack of inventory situation that the monetary policy created uh, with everybody refinancing. He's stuck with this like super weak and probably ve- very probably volatile housing price component of his 2% target mm-hmm. as that was not a part of the, the eighties whatsoever, right? That, that dynamic. And he's going to have to deal with that dynamic for a decade, you know, a decade or more. So I think that he's got his work cut out for him in terms of, uh, in terms of managing monetary, monetary policy 
in a super low uh, inventory environment with a still increasing population. Like how, how do you keep inflation below two when we're not building houses and the population is still increasing and no one wants to sell their house? Like, yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I'd like to spend an entire episode talking about sort of this this mad rush to affordable housing that we're obviously going to need to have in this country as we have, you know, 40 to 50 million of the world's poorest people crossing the border. Um, so and that's obviously not this year, but over the course of the last 25. And I just don't see that. I was actually just reading uh, just quickly. I was reading a, a quick article before I came today about uh, there's there's a company called Zippy. And uh, it's, oh, it's been traditionally not a very easy thing to get uh, financing for uh, mobile homes. Mm, this, yeah. this company is a massively funded company now. Still not Fannie and Freddie backed mortgages uh, for chattel loans. But uh, you know, for, for a asset class that most people would have a pretty bad stigma on, this company has got billions of dollars to lend to uh, for affordable homes right now. So obviously seeing the trend there. Yeah, yeah. I think with, and with the with the increase in quality of manufactured and you know, mobile homes and manufactured homes uh, over time, I think that that stigma is going to change over time. It's not only a solution, but it's actually an excellent solution yeah. to this affordability issue. It is one of the most affordable asset classes. Yeah, and given the quality of the, the the product that's being produced right now, like the stigma is undeserved. Absolutely. If you've ever been to a to an A class mobile home park, I guarantee you, anyone watching this would live in one of those. Yeah, super nice. <laughs> they are yeah. quite nice. So multifamily housing starts, which have been obviously uh, pretty robust over the last few years. Um, Bill McBride at uh, Calculator Risk is predicting that they're going that we're going to see some fairly significant decline soon, yeah. as lending has really tightened on that uh, on that asset class. So anything to add there? Yeah, that's definitely been the case. We talked about it a little bit in previous episodes about how commercial banks are getting smoked right now with the in the wake of the banking crisis. Regulators are clamping down. Uh, risk committees are trying to get their heads around what the embedded losses on bank balance sheets are, uh, and deposit rates have gone up and stayed up for most banks. And so, uh, what has suffered, and we're really seeing this play. We talked about it, like, hey, this is probably coming. It's definitely been the case the past 30 days we've seen this, that uh, loan commitments from banks are getting fewer and far bet- further between. The advance rates, the, the the amount that they'll lend you, you know, before they'd lend you 80%, now it's 75, 70, 65%. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the, the, the advance rates decreasing and the cost of that, uh, the cost of that loan is increasing. And even worse than that, so you know, so you need more equity to do a deal at a time where equity is feeling like very, you know, the world's very risk on right now. We keep being told we're about to have a recession. Anytime now we're gonna have a recession. And so, you know, we should you know stack our dry powder for that recession and the opportunities that are gonna come for that. Yep. So equity is reluctant right now. Banks are requiring more of it. And the cost of the debt that you can get has gone up, uh, so it makes harder. It makes it harder for those projects to pencil. And maybe you just want to mothball those a little bit for a year until maybe you know, hopefully a, a, a better, more advantageous capital markets environment. And you talk to guys all over the country. Uh-huh. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Guys, just saying, hey man, I'm going to pull back, yeah, pencils down. I'm just going to wait on this project. Maybe not go after that one that I I was thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And and the ones that are in the ground already, right? Like they've they're pregnant. Yeah, they're pregnant. Like they're like, well, we can't, we, 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 but we put the roads in, you know, like, or, or we've, we put all the infrastructure in, like, you know, it's, it's not a, um, 
it's not a million dollars of dirt. It's now $6 million of land ready to go vertical on. And the idea of carrying that for a year and hoping that the world gets better versus just sucking it up and paying a higher, paying those higher interest rates, going and raising equity. Yeah. Those developers have less options right now. And what's even more concerning for if you're in, for a lot of those folks right now is that the, the the banks that they've been borrowing from for you know years and years and years, decades even, through no fault of the loan officer, right? Like just because of what's happening on the bank's balance sheet from a bank balance sheet management point of view, those banks can't lend, can't make that loan anymore. And so the guy that you, the loan officer that you used to be able to count on to fund your deals, right now, is going to give you different terms or is out, and right. that. And that's, you know, and he's not calling you necessarily to tell you he's out. He's just hoping you don't call him. <laughs> so like, so call him, so call him and make sure that the guy you think is there for you is, is still there. He's still in the game. And we're seeing as, as a result of that, there's opportunism, opportunism in the private lending space coming in where private lender, you know, Wall Street money, we talked about this on last episode, Wall Street money is coming in because they see that opportunity to charge, you know, three, 400 basis points higher than bank rates and give you that loan so that you can move forward and build that building. But there's a lot of headwinds. The point is that there's lot, there's headwinds kind of from all directions right now on multifamily and uh, multifamily starts. Yeah. Um, so coming out of the ground right now is uh, if you're looking at a 10 year pro forma, it's fine, right? It's just a you're just getting banged a little bit more in the first two years in your pro, pro forma. You're gonna, your costs are higher than you had hoped they might be. You know what I find remarkable? I've I've done some traveling this summer. I was just in Atlanta. Uh, last week, softball dad, any of you out there, daughters who play softball, it's a thing. It's a thing. Oh, it's definitely a thing. So I was in Atlanta for the week. Uh, got a chance to really see quite a bit. Atlanta's a beautiful city. It's the first time I really spent any appreciable time there. But the thing that blew me away was the amount of luxury multifamily going up there. And I take it, and we were talking prior to the show here about the luxury housing that's being built here in Baltimore City. It seems like no lack of it. What are your thoughts on the leasing of the of that's of those space right now? Yeah, so we've been seeing a lot of headlines about concerns over rents, particularly because of all the multifamily new construction inventory that's hitting the market. And I think that that's you know in the affordable segment of you know in the affordable space, I, I'm, I don't I don't see any concern about rents. I don't hear any concerns about sure. rents. Like fifteen hundred bucks for a three bedroom house is fine. Let me ask you something: if if we're talking luxury, like say down there at uh, the the major project that's down there on the peninsula in Baltimore. What's an average rent there? Do you have any idea for a... Yeah, they're like $2,000 plus one bedrooms. That's a start. Yeah. A one bedroom starter is two grand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're beautiful. They're wonderful. You know, it's very nice. Yes, it is. But uh, should be. And, but there's a lot of that inventory hitting the market. I see, I've seen it in Austin. I've seen it in right. Atlanta. Uh, where else was I? Uh, Houston. You know, any, pretty much any major city right now. It feels like there's, there's this flight to luxury rather than affordability. Yeah. And I think that that's a function of how long it takes to get a project out of the ground. Mm. In 2019, that was, that was a phenomenal idea that played itself out. If you hit market in 20, you know, 19, 20, 21, yeah. early part of 22, killing it. Every, yeah, killing it. It's the, and so you did the next one and you started, you decided to go into the ground in 2021 and now it's coming. Now you're starting to build today because that's how long it takes to, to get out of the ground on a hundred unit multifamily building. And now this is typical, right? Like this, this, this happens in, in commercial real estate and is that we'll put too, you know, some people will be making money in a space, put too much, too many projects into the ground and mm -hmm. then they all hit at the wrong time. And then you start to make concessions on free rent and to, to get, le to, and, and rents to get units leased up. 
I think that that's most, the rent softness is mostly going to be a function of those high per square foot yep. areas, particularly in markets where there's lots of new construction hitting the market at the same time. Are you seeing any significant multifamily affordable, like, you know, call it subsidized, whatever. So affordable multifamily, new construction being built here in Baltimore? Yes. I mean, I know of one project in particular up yeah. there on below, you know, I, I don't mean to get too local here for you guys, but I'm sure the same could be said in most other counties around or, or uh, states around the country. There's that project up below North Avenue that we had talked about previously. Yeah. Low-income housing is still, you know, because of the affordability issues, you know, the low-income housing tax credit is still the primary way that we're financing that in the country. I was going to say, it has to be some sort of subsidy to make it work, right? Yeah. Now, when you can find a particular location, which is like, you know, a little bit transitional, you can get the land for cheap and and still make the pro forma work. I We, we have two projects like that, which I'm which I really like because I'm not relying on as a lender or as a developer, as a developer. Yeah. D- doing our own. Yeah. Uh, we have a 45 unit and a 16 unit that we're doing that is not relying on any subsidy. We're just getting the land for very cheap. It's, you know, just like projects like, you know, on the edge, it just worked out. Uh, you, you were able to get it cheap from the seller or was it a yeah, purchase from, from the, the seller? It's a shell, you know, it's a piece. Yeah. Uh, we're, you know, fully gutting it. And so the, uh, those projects I'm a huge fan of because the rents are going to be affordable and market. And I feel really good about being that, right? Like it's a lower margin deal. Can because we go sp- into it real quick? Please, sir? I guarantee you there's guys listening to the podcast who sort of might want to get into that space. You know, like I'm a guy who's maybe owned a four unit, a 10 unit, a 12 unit, and I've graduated. I, you know, and I see the opportunity in my city to purchase a building. So where did you find the building? How did you find it? Yeah. One was uh, talk about what it looked like. And yeah, what, one was, one was just an auction that we bought during COVID actually. So we kind of benefited from just when we bought yeah, it, it right. was the wake of COVID still, everyone was Whatever still freaked out. And we thought that, you know, we thought that it was just a, a good fit for, you know, long-term we were like, you know, affordable rentals are not going to like fall off the cliff. Like if anything, we need more affordable rentals. So for us, it was just purely, Hey, this is an affordable play, yeah. um, uh, affordable multifamily play. So we were able to get the the building for like 30 bucks a foot. Is that the 14 or the 45? That's the 45. Okay. And then the other- So what's the square footage of the building? It's 30,000 square feet. That's going to be 45 units. It was 10 individually deeded parcels that we did a lot consolidation into two parcels. And so we're basically doing two like 22 unit buildings with bookend commercial on the ends. Nice. And so what's the mix of uh, like bedrooms and baths of the 45, do you know? Yeah, mostly one ones, a couple studios, a couple twos. I always thought that like one ones are like the sort of the you 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 didn't like that the the one bedroom stuff for multifamily that's you know that's the standard product you know is that right so what yeah. will so will this be subsidized housing for you guys now we we might do like ten percent vouchers but it'll be mostly market rate although uh, source of income is a protected class in Maryland so we will be making them available to oh, everybody yes of course <laughs> yes I'm sorry thank you for that caveat for those listening do you find that that is an exciting space to be in maybe to start looking at for the future. Yeah, we love that. We think that that's like the, we think that that's a very safe bet of, you know, any, anything affordable, frankly, we think is a very safe bet. If you can make the number, if it, the issue is, can you make the numbers work from the debt point of view right now? Yeah. And maybe you just say, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make very much money in the next couple of years because I just believe that this long-term trend is going to work itself out. And, and I don't actually don't have an argument. I, I actually kind of subscribe to that, but, um, Particularly with the multifamily projects, the benefit you have there is the lending market there is much more robust. The you know the HUD financing that's available, Freddie Mac refinancing that's available, is cheaper than DSCR loans, and so 
it's easier to make the debt service coverage ratio underwriting work on those multifamily projects. Hmm. It's really hard to find the deals. Yeah. But uh, but this was a situation where the pro forma sh- showed that and still shows that that we'll be able to to make the we'll still be able to make money on the project on a current basis, even in the high, today's higher interest rate environment. I don't you know, I, no one would call Dominion a sort of a, you know, a low level construct. You guys obviously have a, a, a great construction company. How long will a project like this sort of take construction wise start to finish? The 45 is going to take us pretty much a year yeah uh, maybe 10 months but i'm kind of mentally budgeting a year and that's that's after permitting and sort of going through all the, the... <laughs> yeah that's once we had permits <laughs> <laughs> right the that's... permitting was a year <laughs> right. the, the permitting was nine months and then it's probably 10 months in the project yeah do you find that baltimore is tougher permitting wise than other places around the country uh for a project like that yeah i would say yeah the, i mean but that's more of just like a blue states red states Generally speaking, it's yeah. it's still very NIMBY uh, in the in the Baltimore metro area. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though there's a tremendous need for affordable housing, you know the the wheels have not really you know the wheels of government have not really fully gotten on board with that idea to <laughs> then make it easy to produce affordable housing. You will get more if you pr- if you make it easier to do it. Yeah, we're still trying to connect those two. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so yeah, no, it's a frustr- it's a frustrating process and one that makes it more difficult to do it and um, it keeps out competition as well. So yeah, it keeps out competition as well. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's going to continue to it, you know it'll affect it'll hurt those who need affordable housing until there's enough groundswell that they can make change and you know change behavior to realize that like developers are part of the solution, not part of the problem, but. There's still very much a dynamic that developers are the, the, the reason for the affordable housing problem and no realization or little realization that they're really the only solution. So yeah. uh, figure out how to work with as opposed to work, work against. Yeah. So uh, for those, would you be willing to talk about that project and maybe the other one in sort of a case study episode? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that'd be fun. If anybody be interested in hearing that, uh, drop a comment. I don't know where you'll do that, but you could certainly drop a comment or send us an email. Uh, I would I would love to go through the numbers of that. And you know what of, else we should do yeah, on this yeah. on a maybe maybe on the same one? Uh, talk about the because we were only ever buy we only we only ever bought houses. Yeah, maybe we'd buy a two unit. The fastball for you guys has always been sort of like um, any city America. Well, I would say like any East Coast city America, which is that row house. Maybe it's got a porch front on it. These are all sort of brick row houses. There's thousands of them in the city, right? That's always been the fastball. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we got really, really, really good at houses and construction's great. Or our construction got really good. Shout out to our construction manager, James Stewart. He's the man. Um, Maybe we'll have him on one day. We should. We started to look at like some larger scale projects, just frankly, because we also thought it'd be fun to do some larger scale projects. And so we get, had to get our educated on all right, how do I evaluate what the zoning code is here? Uh, wh- you know, wh- what are the what are the setback requirements? And I mean, and depending on the municipality, that's a whole freaking rabbit hole. Like, sure, civil engineers make their living off of just can tell you know. I, here's five thousand dollars. Can I build on this? Thing? No, civil engineers make their make their living off of bureaucratic red tape and being able to weigh <laughs> their way through that. Yeah, that's how absolutely. they make their money. But there's also if you but if you can also figure that out yourself, you can find some really interesting opportunities. Like we bought this shell for thirty bucks a foot. I'm and dying we, to know where it is, by the way. Oh, it's the two hundred block of Park Avenue on the west side of downtown. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we just bought the we bought a house on the four hundred block of North Howard Street, also on the west side of downtown. We got that shell for like twenty bucks a foot. 
So now it's a piece, right? Like it needs everything, but they're both in zoning districts, which allow multifamily without big parking requirements. And so, and there's, you know, those are, that's unique in a, in, well, in a city like Baltimore or any city in America. There's, a, there's unique zoning codes, which allow for this kind of con- conversion from office to multifamily. If you're interested in that idea, you have to dig in and figure out this, you know, how to understand your local zoning code and how to underwrite a property based off of what the dwelling units per lot area are. Like that's not stuff that you have to think about when you're buying houses. Right. And it's also not brain surgery, like, but, but, but it's also not brain surgery. Yeah, you got to learn something new though. Yeah. You got to learn something new, make sure you don't trip on yourself and get you out can, of your comfort zone. Yeah. Get a little outside of your comfort zone, but, but it's not brain surgery. Once you figure it out, it becomes like, you know, second nature very quickly. I would think that Look, man, I've been to a lot of cities in America, and I would think that opportunities like that are all over the country right now. I think so. Yeah, I think so. As cities are increasingly being gentrified, yet still finding ways to keep that affordability, I find that there's districts in every city in America that are sort of, you know, look, I mean, let's be honest, they're a little run down, yet they're trying trying really hard, especially in that area that you're talking about, if anyone knows the area, there's always going to be those districts in every city in America. Yeah. And I think that uh, on a going forward basis, as we see this kind of like office issue, you know, this office market issue play itself out, yeah. you know, there's been lots of articles, very fluffy articles about like office to multifamily and like how that might be a solution, but it's not a silver bullet. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, all right, so, but I'm a developer and I want to like go do one. How do I do that? And digging into the zoning code and figuring out how to underwrite that in your local municipality is you, you have to you have to roll your sleeves up and, and figure that out. It's not that hard though. Like it's it it seems very like, oh, you know, that's fancy. It's it's just it's not that hard when you actually break it down. And we've been able to find a couple of really interesting opportunities uh, based off of that. So. You said, uh, and and we can wrap it up, but uh, you said that there's also going to be commercial space in these. Yeah, just bookend commercial. Like um, retail or what? Yeah, yeah, retail, you know, coffee shop and smoothie place, that oh, kind of thing. Look at you. Look at you. Okay, man. Well, I guess we can have a place to do the podcast. I mean, yeah. I'll probably be the barista, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, listen, uh, I guess we'll wrap it there. I, I think that would be an awesome Good podcast on. to do in the future. Maybe have James on as well. Uh, hope you guys appreciated the show today. Real Investor Radio. I'm Craig Fuhr. Jack Bevere. Yes, you are. All right. We'll talk to you soon. See ya.